I, I thought I could just fade it in. There is a In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reason. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson and I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. Good evening. Hi, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. Tonight, because it's our 13th episode, we thought we would be a little superstitious. Uh, So we're going to chat about a few different ways that superstition affects our behaviour, a few cultural things, and as usual, we'll end up with some odd things we came across this week. So do you have any superstitions? Uh, I... Currently, I don't think I do, but then I think it's more about being active. Like, I need to be doing something that requires a superstition. Mm. So, when I was doing exams, so I think from like year 11, right the way through to the end of my postgraduate degree, doctorate, Mm. before every exam, I would listen to the same song, which was... What song was it? Nirvana. Yeah. Dumb. <laughs> this thing about like it's like a counter. Yeah, I, I like I think it happened like one time, and then I got like a good result or something, and then it became this thing that I would and it would have to be the first song that I listened to. Okay, which would require some planning because it would like this was CD era. Yeah, so yeah, I would have to have that on CD. Yeah, and then I was at my girlfriend's house one time, and I had to like dig out her CD anyway. What happened if you accidentally listened to the wrong thing first? Was that I turned just it off. yeah? Right, so it wasn't. Yeah. I don't go to the exam. And then, like, and then the other other no, <laughs> um, and then like the other stuff was like lucky clothes or unlucky clothes. Oh, and, yeah. Like certain items would I would not want to wear on yeah particular days. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Yourself? Uh yeah, lucky shoes. Yep. Same green heels for exams. The only superstition, like the sort of, you know, generic black cat ladders, that sort of thing that I've ever even considered is the breaking a mirror one. And I've got no idea why. Yeah. But there's always like a little moment of, ooh. Yeah. But there's nothing. I, I don't I, believe it, but it, it's yeah. just that moment of. I, I do have a thing about like seeing black cats walk and think, really? oh, should I be worried about that? Like, <laughs> like just checking with yourself. whether. Yeah. I'm not sure I ever really come up with an answer. No. And I often wondered about like people in hospitals, like because I would always sort of see them sit in the same spots. Mm. And I wondered, like, is that habit or is that superstition? I'd be really curious know. to know. Because if because if you look in like a classroom, that always happens. People sit in the same spot. Or like conferences. Yeah. No, no. Um, like training, like so yeah. professional development training. You can really upset a room if you point that out because always then someone gets up and moves after the break and then says, "Do you see? I moved," which completely ruins oh, the. That's great. So good. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm toying with my colleagues when I go to training. <laughs> so, shall I kick us off? Yeah, kick us off. All right. So, the first article that I've got is called Keep Your Fingers Crossed, How Superstition Improves Performance by Demish and colleagues. Uh, It was published in 2010 in Psychological Science. So, they talk about how there's a bunch of theories that say that superstitious behavior sort of helps us regulate how we're feeling and gives us a feeling of control that might not be there otherwise. And their suggestion is that it's more than that, that It improves performance because it's linked with self-efficacy. So there's been previous research that's found a link between belief in good luck and people's level of self-efficacy. Yeah, right. So they're thinking it's more about that rather than the sort of general calming control kind of aspect. So they did four studies um, that kind of build on one another. So I'll quickly run us through them. The first one was to see whether if someone external activated a superstition for someone about to complete a task, whether it would improve their performance. So they got a bunch of uni students, 28 of them, and assigned them to complete a golf putting task. And before they did it, half of them were told that the ball had been really lucky for people today. The other half were just given the ball and consistently people performed significantly better 
with the lucky ball. Maybe it was lucky. Maybe. (laughs) We'll continue. (laughs) So the next one was looking at a different superstition. So the thing of being told, I've got my fingers crossed for you. Mm. It's a German study, so apparently they say something about pressing the thumbs, but it means the same same thing. (laughs) So they compared three conditions, two controls, one that involved something to do with describing what you were doing with your fingers that wasn't lucky. Yeah. One that was just a general start the task and then the fingers crossed. Yeah. And they got them to do a motor dexterity task. So they had to, I don't know if you've seen those games where they've got sort of little holes in a uh, sort of sheet on a cube and you have to tip it to get the ball into yeah, the holes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it was quite a reasonably advanced one because there was 36 little balls that they had to get in and they were also asked about at the end of it how good they felt about their performance and so consistently again they performed better if someone said i've got my fingers crossed for you really than the other two yeah because i reckon i'd like when someone says that to me i kind of like i think i I think i feel the pressure more feel a bit anxious (laughs) than (laughs) anxious, and that would probably make my performance worse interesting Yeah, and their feelings of whether it was that they performed well or not didn't differ regardless of how well they went. So then they wanted to look at the link between self-efficacy and superstition. So they asked people to bring in a lucky charm so that then it was a personal thing rather than an externally applied Mm -hmm. luck of some sort. And so they had the group split in half again. Half of them brought, well, all of them brought in a lucky charm. But half of them had the lucky charm sort of taken away from them in a sort of like, it was, there was a little bit of deception in it in that it was sort of, you know, the experimenter made a bit of a mistake with the camera or something and they just happened to leave the charm in the other room rather than being told, okay, you can't have this now. So they were given a, a survey about their lucky charms and then they were asked to rate their sense of self efficacy about how well they would do on the upcoming task. And it was a um, memory pairs game of, you know, flipping over the cards, trying to match up pairs. So they found, again, significantly improved performance of people with their lucky charms. And they also reported higher self-efficacy. And did it mediate? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And they found that they also must have asked them about mood and anxiety because they found that that didn't differ across groups. So there was Mm. no sort of anxiety about being separated from no, but, but the lucky it's charm. It's this thing that sort of, it increases your confidence yeah. in the task, which self-efficacy is confidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your your and belief then, that you can and a, do it. And if you ever look at self-efficacy literature, it's astounding. Like, the, so just that, like, belief in yourself predicts performance or mm. skill. Like, yeah. So it's just really quite interesting. Concept. And it's not a kind of general confidence. It's a belief in an ability. Like rather than going, I'm a great person. No. It's, I'm really good at doing this thing. Yeah. So it's kind of applied rather than just a general cockiness. And in psychological training, like if you become a psychologist, the key thing that is shown is that if you're a trainee and you're confident, you do well versus not being confident, but but you might have actually read a lot and know a lot. Yeah. And know how to do stuff. But if you're not confident, you won't execute it mm. very well. So it's really quite interesting. It is. So, yeah. Sort of about how you use that. Yeah. And yeah, like the mind games feeling. that supervisors must play with us. Yeah. <laughs> that, <that's, laughs> Let's not open that can of worms. That's a whole pod. <laughs> <laughs> the last study, they did a similar format as they did for the previous one. Mm-hmm. But their idea was that they would have a look whether at what actually facilitated self-efficacy so some of the literature says that people have greater performance with self-efficacy because they set higher goals and then they persevere longer than people with lower Mm self-efficacy so they wanted to see whether that was actually taking place with superstition so everything was the same as the previous study except they got them to do an anagram task so that's like make so question yeah out of a series of letters yeah Uh, got uni students again and they found that the people with their lucky charm performed better and had higher self-efficacy and that they also set higher goals for themselves and persisted longer so it sort of supported Mm. their theory and that then this persistence mediated 
the relationship between self-efficacy and performance. Yeah, right. So it was that role of keeping on going, huh. even because it was a, a task where they sort of self-stopped. It's, it's, it's so funny because it's like, so, you know, you're superstitious about this, this object, yep. but then actually it has a, a self potentially self-reinforcing effect because you it does actually change something in you. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you probably believe in it more. Yeah. And sort of just keeps on feeding into itself. So there you go. Carry yeah. around your lucky charm with you. Well, <laughs> that actually ties in quite nicely with the one that I read. So this paper is The Psychological Benefits of Superstitious Rituals in Top Sport, mm-hmm. a study amongst top sports persons. It's by Michaela Shippers and Paul Van Lang, uh, Lange, Lange <laughs> from uh, the Netherlands in the Journal of Applied Social Psych in 2006. So I'll read out the quote because I kind of quite like it. Yep. Some football players want to enter the field first. Others want to enter the field last. Whereas still others want to touch the grass just upon entering the field. Yet some players want to wear the same shirt, the same clothes, or even the same underwear for long series of matches. It is not difficult to list more examples of what may be termed superstitious rituals. In fact, most sports persons seem to be somewhat superstitious, especially those who are performing at the top. Mm. And... Like even just reading that out loud, yep. I thought of about four examples of cricketers. Yeah. Like Steve Waugh always had like a pink, yep. a pink hanky or something. Mm-hmm. I think Merv Hughes always liked to enter the field last. Yeah. You see the, the cricket players like, you know, do this like thing as they walk out. Like yeah. So it's really quite interesting. So this paper asked, why is it that seemingly sane sports persons act in sometimes rather unusual ways before a match? Do they need to engage in such such acts in every match and does it depend on the team for which they are playing and does it matter whether the stakes are high or low okay so that's the kind of the crux of this paper so they they talk about that superstitious rituals differ from normal routine and the person gives the action a special magical kind mm-hmm. of significance but the distinction between perhaps superstition preparing for a game can not always particularly clear yeah and also because it kind of gets built into their Routine. routine yeah for example like you you wear your particular shoes or yeah. like i would listen to this particular song yeah blah, blah, blah. that's just something that you do every it's time just something that you do right and so you know and they sort of talk about this some it's easy to see that have no function you know useful preparation but other ones can be a bit more challenging to distinguish yeah so probably on a spectrum i guess and they talk about a little bit like we're talking about the function rituals might be preparing mentally for each performance in this in this sense they might seem to serve a rational or useful purpose Mm -hmm. so they talked about how rituals could develop in multiple different ways so the behaviorist skinner yeah he did a study where food was given to a pigeon in irregular intervals and and it was left to chance as to what was being reinforced and then found that pigeons kept doing whatever it was that they were doing right before the food was administered Mm -hmm. and he sort of labeled this as superstition uh, you know, because they're believing that there's a causal relationship between behavior and consequence. Other ways in which superstitions can develop. You know, there's again, this is like illusion of control. You know, so in general, people are inclined to see themselves as a cause, even mm-hmm. in situations where they're not influencing the situation. Yeah. And I actually noticed there was a whole lot of papers on sports fans mm-hmm. and superstitions sports yeah. fans have. So they're people who have no, like there's no, they're if they're watching, watching. a bas- basketball yeah. match or a cricket match, you know, what, t-shirt they're wearing or whatever it's not going like how is that possibly going yeah to do something but people do so when there's like chance and skill that determines an outcome of the match like we're quite prone to these kinds of thinking that we're got some level of control or yeah. something like that so and they also talk about so three explanations so, so people see a causal link between actions and outcomes when there's none there's a just world hypothesis so people have this need to believe that their environment is just an orderly place. You mm-hmm. get what you deserve and you deserve what you get. And so people downplay chance yeah. as an explanation. And so therefore, if you take that away, then it must be to do with behavior mm. and consequence. So, so back onto this Skinner idea. Or, and this attributional explanation. So if you attribute success to skills, abilities, failure you ascribe to external circumstances. Yeah. And so you attribute chance events to skills and abilities. And so you can then can think that you can influence the outcome by rituals or something. Mm-hmm. So they talked about, well, when would most people be prone to developing superstitious rituals? 
They argue that people carry out rituals in uncertain situations Mm -hmm. in which the outcome is not only uncertain, but also the outcome is important to them. So if it's uncertain, you're more likely to, the theory goes, that you'd be more likely to engage in superstitious rituals. Yeah. And it's more important, then there's more tension Mm -hmm. and so more reliance on rituals. Yeah. And then they also talked about like where the differences in personality would influence the extent to which people need to carry out rituals. So they argue that people who are different in locus of control, so the extent to which people see the environment as controllable, also were different in the way in which they feel tension and their self-confidence before a game and then hence different the way in which they act in a superstitious kind of way. Mm -hmm. They were unsure as to whether inner locus of control or external locus of control would be associated. They offered two competing hypotheses. Okay. So method, uh, 197 top-class sports people, 145 of them men. So they were from 23 Dutch football, volleyball and hockey clubs Mm -hmm. and like top. Yeah. Like top class. National sort of. Yeah, like their their league or whatever. Age range 15 to 35 years. We're given questionnaires on locus of control, superstition, and then what they so superstition was like what rituals do you perform, mm-hmm. and then self ratings like how do you compare to others, and then what they did is they had six vignettes so six stories where you are the person was asked to imagine a match where the relative standing and also the importance of the outcome was manipulated. Mm-hmm. So relative standing is like you're against a superior opponent, an equal opponent, or an inferior opponent. Yeah, and importance of outcome you're about to play finals, mm-hmm. which is obviously very important. Or training match, not important. Yeah. Right? And so they mix and match those. Okay, yeah. And then they ask questions after each one to, as a manipulation check to check that actually these sports people were having a psychological response to it, that kind of thing. And then measure their level of psychological tension, their ritual commitment. So how annoying would it be if you couldn't carry out the rituals and how important were the rituals? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. With you. The results, 80% mentioned one or more superstitious rituals before a game with mm-hmm. a mean of 2.6. Huh. I'll, I'll run through some of them because it's great. Yeah. Wearing the same shoes for every match, mm-hmm. Amy Dalton, mm-hmm. um, to eating four pancakes before a home home match. <laughs> There's some striking rituals such as putting a piece Do you reckon of, those are four of the little mini Dutch ones or oh, four pancakes? The, what are they the they Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is Dutch. Was a pan of cooking. They talk about uh, striking rituals such as putting a piece of chewing gum on a trampled part of the football match, wearing shin guards all the way from home to the place of the game, even when the participant had to wear them for over seventy miles. Wow! Having to see the number thirteen at least once before the game, kissing a football shirt, smoking a cigarette in the morning before a game. Oh, and again, they sort of point out it's difficult to distinguish some of the rituals yeah. from useful preparation. If the ritual considered eating special food, it was often described in quite detail. Mm-hmm. They talked about warm-up rituals were also abundant. You know, you would complete the exercise in a fixed order or with yeah. a set teammate. And if you couldn't carry it out, you'd feel unhappy about it. And some would mention that things would definitely go wrong. So it's kind of really interesting. And the thing that comes to mind immediately to me is like where you draw the line between, say, an OCD type behavior where you have to do things in a certain order yeah and you or you fear in- disaster and, and you have the insight that it's a bit stupid yeah yeah versus yeah it's interesting so what they found a good evidence so cutting to the results the good evidence for most of the hypotheses so ritual commitment so superstition rituals ritual commitment was higher when facing an equal or superior opponent yep than an inferior opponent. Mm-hmm. It was also high when the importance of the outcome was believed to be high. Yep. So like finals versus a training match, right? And that, that kind of makes sense. It's like kind of like, well, I, I need this yeah. versus not needing it. Yeah. Those with the external locus of control exhibited greater levels of ritual commitment and psychological tension than with an inner thing. So it's this kind of like belief that things outside the world. Yeah. Outside. So, so they're trying to regain some control. Yeah. Yeah. And psychological tension mediated the link between relative standing, so quality of the opponent and importance of ritual commitment. Hmm. So much in line with what you were sort of talking yeah. about. And so superstitious behaviour is most pronounced when there's uncertainty is high or moderate, the importance of seating is high and the person perceives success as dependent on external factors rather than being under his or her hmm. own control. So it's quite functional. Yeah. 
Hmm. Yeah, and and sounds predictable. Yeah, you know, you know, or like it's predictable when they'll be more likely to occur. Yeah, interesting. Which is kind of interesting because if you think about the way that these rituals would have come about, yeah, it would have been a very unpredictable yeah. kind of way. And they have this great section about the tension reducing effect of rituals and that how that then increases the conditioning yeah. effect. So psychologically, we talk about conditioning as as in like you do it more and more and mm. more. It's not like something to do with your hair. <laughs> like, <laughs> hang uh, on, hang on. <laughs> I misunderstood all of first year psych. <laughs> Amy's eyes gone completely yeah. wide. You mean I'm not supposed to be practicing as a beautician on the That's side? It. Nope. Um, and so <sighs> basically, <Life> wasted. <laughs> <laughs> they they say that you know these actually may help in reducing tension. And help with preparation. And so, Mm -hmm. there's a realistic link between superstitious ritual and desired outcome. And that actually may be quite important. Hmm. (laughs) This great section where they talk about, you know, well, you know, some rituals could have a detrimental effect on performance. like, And so, you need to encourage, like, teams need to encourage ones that don't affect performance. So, the the example is the karate practitioner said that he had this superstitious ritual of touching his pants during a karate tournament uh-huh. but that would mean that his guard was down for a moment <laughs> and would provide an uh, opportunity for his yeah. opponent to score so so sort of counterintuitive yeah <laughs> it's like, oh, so kind of interesting it's like let's reinforce the ones that are not detrimental <laughs> yeah <laughs> harm minimization and yeah that's it cool so the next one i've got links on with yours as well i mean they're probably all kind of do but seems kind of appropriate so this one's called self-attribution bias and paranormal beliefs by van elk uh published this year in consciousness and cognition this study looked not just at superstition but broader at paranormal beliefs so beliefs in witchcraft in precognition in superstition in sort of channeling information from mm-hmm. people and looked at the association with belief in these kind of things and cognitive biases. They kind of talk through a range of different perspectives on belief in paranormal phenomena. One perspective is that it's about cognitive deficits, so it's supplementing a bunch of misunderstandings, I suppose, and cognitive errors. So sort of trying to make sense of, of false perception, essentially. Mm-hmm. Another perspective is that it's adaptive and motivational, that it sort of serves to boost your own sense of yourself by believing in these powers or things like that. The idea of the current study was to focus on the illusion of control that you just spoke about Mm. and the self-attribution bias. So the illusion of control is a tendency to overestimate your control over chance. Things like thinking that selecting certain numbers for a lottery ticket will mean that you get a particular outcome. When, I totally have that yeah. constant discussion with my wife about, like, I would want to choose my numbers where she would just get the, like, the random thing. Random, yeah. I'm like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that there's a particular, a particular pattern about something. <laughs> would you do the same numbers every time? No. Oh, uh, no, 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 definitely Because so to me that makes more sense doing the same numbers every time. Because then you're static, and then the randoms happening around yeah, you. Yeah, no, I know, but I know what you mean, but I, 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 I <laughs> but I never, you get a feeling. <laughs> no, but I would never feel. I never, I would never feel any particular set of numbers I, I was attached enough to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Good news is, is that that sort of tendency to overestimate that does decrease with age. Does so it? as you get older. Yep. I'm not finding that that's true at all. But anyway, so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you're actually, the outlier. <laughs> hang on, is, that, is that just evidence that we're like life just wears you down? I think like, so. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, no, nah, I can't nothing. do anything. Life <laughs> is meaningless. <laughs> I can't even control the numbers on the thing. Yeah. I'm just a speck in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and unsurprisingly, it's higher in people with delusional disorder and schizophrenia. Yep. Yep. So in terms of self-attribution bias, what you spoke about as well. So assuming that positive things are to do with your own attributes and negative things are external factors, that also decreases with age and it's related to mental health. So it's lower in depression, but they sort of highlight that it can be a problem at either end of the scale. So you sort of need a balance of thinking that you have control over the world, but not that you control everything. Which means either end of the scale. So that either it being too low is a problem or too 
too, too high. high. Yeah. yeah. Their idea was to look at these biases. And so they went to psychic fairs in Europe yep. and they got they got people to play a computerized card game yep. and then complete a survey. The card game was a sort of guessing game where they had to select a card and then guess whether another card was higher or lower than the one that they'd chosen, but all the cards were face down. Mm-hmm. So it was purely chance. Then they had to indicate the degree of control that they felt they had. So whether they selected the card or whether they thought that it was a sort of computer no generation. Virtu- no virtual cards. It was virtual cards. See, I would I would feel like if someone was doing that with me, yeah. I would feel I would have more control over it if it was a real card versus a virtual card. Interesting. Yeah. There's something about it like not a being... A tangible... Like it not being a real thing. Yeah, not being a programmed kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So they also asked them how happy they were with the outcome when the cards were turned over and they yeah. saw what the result was. Because the- like if you if you think that you're psychic... Yeah. Or whatever. I mean, I'm probably just extrapolating here yeah. incorrectly. But then like... How can you control a computer? But like a card? Yeah, anyway, it's a sorry. physical thing. Anyway. It's you know, there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. We'll replicate it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like too much work. Anyway. <laughs> so the survey included a paranormal belief scale, question on the sort of family of origins, religion and spirituality, sort of in a longer scale, you know, how religious is your family rather than watch religion demographic details and then one item that was from another scale that had been found to be related to paranormal beliefs which is i think i really know what some people mean when they say when they talk about mystical experiences so how much you agreed with that statement yeah they also asked five open-ended questions about people's interest in paranormal phenomena and if they thought they had any special abilities that other people didn't have. Yeah, right. That would have been so time-consuming to score. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you would have got some really interesting answers. <laughs> so they found that people had stronger feelings of control when the results were congruent with their choice. Yeah. And they also felt happier with the result, as you would expect. The belief in paranormal phenomena was related to how spiritual they rated their parents, but not how religious yeah. And then also to that single item about thinking that people had had unusual kind of events. Mm-hmm. They also found that the self-attribution bias was related to traditional religious beliefs and to superstition. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, people who are more superstitious had more of that tendency to assume that positive things were related to themselves and negative to the outside world. Yeah. Yeah. So... I found the open-ended questions interesting as well. They asked when people started having these kinds of beliefs and it was pretty, I mean, it was a small sample, but it was pretty scattered across the lifespan and people identified, you know, particular life events that then they'd started, you know, seeing ghosts after someone passed away or that there were kind of markers in their life that when they started being able to have these special abilities. And then for some people, it was just something that developed over their lifetime and sort of gradually increased and they honed their abilities that was how they described almost everyone reported some kind of special ability so not necessarily being psychic but something like having a sense when something was going to happen or having dreams that then went on to happen about half believed that they had a higher amount of intuition than the general population yeah it's a sort of a general being being attuned to being attuned but when you think about it, like like some of the things that they they feel that they're attuned to are fairly generic, mm. I would imagine. Yeah, and can happen. I've certainly had moments where I've like before I've met someone. Yeah, I'm like I reckon they're going to tell me X. Yeah, and uh, like one or two times it was like kind of like like what? Hang on, and then it actually happened. Mm. And it was like like it was really and you kind of like is it was that. Was it like the universe sending me some kind of mm. signal there or not? Like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I've had a couple of times of dreaming that my friends were in labor when they were, even when they were, you know, a few weeks mm-hmm. premature or that sort of thing and waking up and going, they're in labor and messaging them and getting a response back from their partner going, yeah, they are. But it's kind of, you can see how if you have those kind of things that you would, I don't know, this sort mm. of, again, that kind of self-fulfilling thing that you then go well, then the more often that you reach out the more more likely you're going to get and because you'd be more attuned you'd be more attuned to the positive 
Yeah. Versus like the negative. The times when it didn't happen. The, yeah. the times it didn't happen, you might, yeah, whatever, right? But, that, but the times that you remember the times it does happen. Yeah. And I think it, it's sort of, you know, the rational part of me goes, well, you know, when your friend's pregnant, then you are kind of thinking about them a bit and maybe yeah. it's kind of yeah. normal to have a dream that that's happening and it just so happens that that's worked out. But it's interesting how we try and make meaning out of... Well, that we do make out of things, yeah. That we we do, tell and we us, hang on to it. We tell we tell stories, yeah. Like, and that, I think that's the fascinating thing about humans mm. is that we're like meaning making machines, yeah. And so we make meaning out of stuff, mm. and and this has an application to a whole lot of stuff, like in the clinical realm, where people will make stories out of out of events and mm. kind of come up with explanations frequently like in our job will be a negative explanation for you know self-blaming explanation Mm. for why something completely random happened to them yeah and it'll have a huge impact on them and it may not be at all related to yeah yeah anything that they could control yeah yeah and then trying to shift that dysfunctional belief so i mean one classic one would be like you know people believing that they caused an illness Mm. because of Doing certain actions, doing certain things, yeah. or victims of trauma, yeah. believing that they've caused it for whatever reason, yeah. that kind of stuff. When hmm. you know many instances of trauma are just completely random, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, geez, so really took us down a dark path there. Yeah, well, so, huh. so to lighten the mood a little bit, <laughs> uh, let's talk about gambling. Okay. So this is really interesting. It's from the International Gambling Studies Journal mm-hmm. in 2016, and it's by Jung Sun Kim or Sunny Kim. Mm-hmm. Is uh, was in brackets and his and colleagues, and it's called "Gambling Motivations and Superstitious Beliefs: A Cross-Cultural Study with Casino Customers." Mm. So uh, it's kind of interesting because it, I don't think it's really a psychology journal because it starts off with like a really great literature review talking about how there's a burgeoning um, South Korean gambling industry. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a study into gamblers, superstitious beliefs in gambling motivations. And the gambling industry, if you're interested in South Korea, is projected to grow 15 to 20% per year. Wow. Uh, And so so they wanted to increase the understanding of customers visiting South Korean casinos, but specifically looking at casinos that were only open to foreigners. Oh, okay. Something, something to do with the way that casino laws are, or something. Yeah. And so, previous studies have looked at just actual just Korean citizens. Yeah. Essentially, what they hypothesise that superstitions and gambling motivations will vary across ethnic groups. Yeah. Essentially, it was an interesting rationale to study the paraphrasing here to help casinos operate and identify and better understand different customer needs based on nationality, increase customer satisfaction, and business performance. So I make more money. Yeah. <laughs> but interesting. But you know, as good a reason as any. Sure. <laughs> sure. It's having a look with some people who've got gambling problems. I'm not so sure. Anyway. Yep. So, but what was really interesting about this paper is that it talks about a whole lot of different cultural motivations. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking very much sort of on the individualistic yeah. kind of stuff. But so they talk about many Chinese kind of elements. So the Chinese tradition of feng shui, mm-hmm. so being in harmony with one's surroundings, such as like say doors should not face each other. Yeah, the chi or life force would be encouraged to exit more quickly. So in the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, rebuilt its famous lion statue because entering the mouth of the lion was bad feng shui so, mm-hmm. and essentially bad bad luck. Talk about the lunar calendar. So the Chinese New Year houses and businesses are painted red for luck, and mm-hmm. so the the wind Las Vegas uses color the color red for its interior. Yeah. Numerology. So four has the same pronunciation as death. Mm-hmm. In the word death in Mandarin. So it's considered unlucky. Unlucky. Eight is considered the luckiest because it shares a pronunciation with the word for fortune or prosperity. And I actually remember, like as a teenager, my parents took us to Hong Kong mm. right before, like a year before reunification. Yeah. And we were on a bus and they stopped past someone's house mm-hmm. and they were like, because they stopped and they said, this is a really, really wealthy individual. And you can tell because their personalized number plate was four eights. Wow. That was like super expensive yep. or something. And it was like on a rolls or something. Yeah. Like so like casino in Vegas that has no floors with the number 
four. Yeah. Isn't it? So like 40 to 49 is no flaws. Yeah. There's other gambling related beliefs. So before gambling, not drinking sapu, which is a drink in Taiwan because su sounds like losing in Chinese. Hmm. No sex before gambling because it would drain you positive energy or chi. Not reading books because the word also, the one of the words sounds like losing. So you'd be out. Maybe. That explains why I'm not just rolling in money <laughs> and all my gambling habits. You're <laughs> reading Harry Potter before you're going <laughs> into the casino. And then Americans, they fear the number 13, especially Friday the 13th. People avoid that date mm-hmm. quite obviously in Western culture. They talk about gambling motivations. I'm not going to talk about yeah. that aspect of the study at all because really it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. So, so complicated. Quite interesting, but anyway. So, they had a United States-based ethics committee, but then they conducted the study in a South Korean foreigner-only huh. casino, which is quite interesting. Yeah. They got two casino employees who solicited customers of American, Chinese, Japanese, or Koreans living abroad, mm-hmm. but were coming to this casino to participate. And they were given a questionnaire, and they were given a pen as a thank you. Oh, how nice. Um, yes, yeah, so they, they have some questions on superstitious oh, beliefs. I forgot to mention the bar of organic chocolate that the participants in the last study received. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was organic and fair trade. <laughs> fair trade. Was it, please tell me it was like sort of coconut. They, they co- didn't, they didn't mention it was just like, organic fair trade uh, chocolate. And, like, and I'm sure it would have been dark. The psychic fair. Uh, it would have been dark chocolate too. Ugh. Another podcast. It's just just normal chocolate, people. Yeah. <laughs> just plain old milk chocolate. Dark yeah. chocolate is... It's not chocolate. I, I'll eat it. Mm, if I'm desperate. I went through a period of time where we, we, we got our yeah, family got lots. a lot of dark chocolate given to us. Yeah. And it was all dark because apparently that was healthier. Yeah. It's not healthier. No. And I, and I, I would eat it and yeah. I'd be thinking of milk chocolate. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, we, we can probably... <laughs> if you're listening and you gave me a block of chocolate, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> It's appreciated, but next time milk. <laughs> next, next time milk chocolate. Please. Note to self. Um, fruit and nut. Um, so, they <laughs> if any listeners would like to send us chocolate, <laughs> two shrinks pilot. Uh, so they had a questionnaire on superstitious beliefs. There was eight items on cognitive gaming beliefs. Three superstitious beliefs from a Chinese superstitious belief scale, mm-hmm. and. 23 questions on gambling motivations and they had it translated into Chinese, English, Japanese and Korean. Mm-hmm. So they had 400 people they approached, 323 agreed, 16% American, 31% Chinese, 33 Japanese, 20% Korean, mm-hmm. 82% male, 68% chose Baccarat as their favourite casino game. Huh. I don't think I've ever played that. I'm not even sure I know what it is. Is it the dice one? I think so. Could be. Top three superstitious beliefs include... When I am feeling down, I just know my luck will be bad. Mm-hmm. If someone is sitting or standing next to me that I feel is giving me bad vibes, then I need to change my position or I don't, or I won't win. Mm-hmm. And I often get hunches which I must follow. Mm. So they noticed a number of differences. The Chinese group more strongly endorsed. When I am feeling down, I just know my luck will be bad, and that was mm-hmm. more frequent than compared to Japanese and Koreans. Mm-hmm. Koreans score for I think I have a psychic ability to predict a winner was lower than other nationalities. Okay. American Chinese groups showed similar scores for I am superstitious about the way I gamble and I have a ritual which I must carry out when I'm gambling. Mm-hmm. And that those were higher than the Japanese or Koreans. I will not drink a certain beverage because it's pronounced like losing and before gambling I'll not perform any activity which is pronounced like losing or bad luck. Only Koreans showed significantly lower mean scores compared to the other groups. So the, Interesting. Ja- the Japanese, Americans and Chinese scored higher on it that. surprises me about the American. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. It's, hmm. I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I will not have sex before gambling because of losing my energy. The American and Japanese respondents had higher, similar mean scores, which were higher than the Chinese and Korean. Huh. So it wouldn't have. The Americans. The American surprises me again. Yeah. Mm, anyway. But maybe they're kind of like... I just wonder where, like, you know, you then Western gamblers might just be taking from any kind of yeah culture because we're just, sort of less systematic. Yeah, well, you know that kind of you know very classic white yeah Western thing of like appropriating from different yeah. cultures yeah that kind of thing. Mm. 
uh, overall, the, the Chinese American respondents were more more strongly endorsed gambling superstitious beliefs compared to the Korean and Japanese respondents. Hmm. So, and between Japanese and Koreans, the Japanese were more superstitious. Okay. So, I thought it was really interesting, interesting. that there's a cultural element to it. Don't tell my social my sociological <laughs> friends that I'm so, moonlighting as a sociologist. <laughs> You've uh, chosen a private medium to share this. <laughs> that's it. Uh, supporting uh, so this supports earlier findings that Japanese and American baseball players there was differences that uh, Americans were more superstitious than, okay. than Japanese baseball players hmm. so and yet in the study American gamblers are more superstitious than Japanese gamblers right and then the other thing they point out is that you can't just lump Asia as one group yeah that there are actually unique differences so yeah. they didn't really talk much about they didn't go into the mechanisms behind it but interesting hmm. shall we have one last cultural one before we wrap up yes, very it. quick uh so this last one is called uh buyers of apartments superstitious evidence from the russian real estate market i'm so pleased you picked this one because i saw this one and i didn't get to read it <laughs> well here you go so it's by antipov and their colleague who i have no hope of pronouncing Please, their surname pokrishevskaya yep Hello, how are you? <laughs> um, it's appalling, I apologise. Uh, in Judgment and Decision Making in 2015. Okay, so they start by talking about how it's pretty commonly known that we change our behaviour based on superstitious numbers. So like you mentioned, people have a sort of fear of Friday the 13th and tend to be more risk averse or to avoid events scheduled on that day. There's... Uh, an association in Chinese culture between numerology and career decisions. And they sort of question whether it's sort of a self-fulfilling thing that you're told when you're younger that a certain number means that you're, you know, destined to go into a, sit- a certain job. And then there's also been real estate research done in Asian markets, which, like you mentioned as well, sort of tends to centre around avoiding the number four and seeking out eight uh and then there's the u.s custom to admit the 13th floor because it's bad luck as well so they compared the percentage of flats sold off a plan in buildings that were over 15 stories high in russia so their idea was to see whether floor seven was more popular and whether floor 13 was less popular and they did this by comparing it to the floors on either side so floor seven was compared to the average of floors six and eight why seven like lucky number seven lucky number seven yep and 13 to 12 and 14 Mm -hmm. and all of the floor plans on each level were the same and so their idea was to see see whether there was a preference so they found that significantly more uh, flats were sold from the seventh floor than from the sixth and eighth, mm-hmm. and significantly less on the thirteenth floor than twelve and fourteen. Yeah. And among the f- six floors that were studied, the percentage sold was lowest for floor thirteen and highest for floor seven. So they're just sitting empty. Is that? Well, they hadn't been bought off the off, off the plan before construction. So, presumably, they would have been bought later, but they were less preferred at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, there you go. Quick quick study, but I kind of went looking for this one because I know there are suburbs in Melbourne where they're sort of pitching to Chinese markets and skipping the fourth floor. A friend of mine bought an apartment for a lot cheaper because she bought the fourth apartment and so the rest of the building sold for more than what her one did because of the suburb that she bought in everyone else was scared of buying the fourth apartment so it's interesting there you go so real estate tips (laughs) (laughs) there you go so shall we take a quick break let's take a break we will be back you have been listening to two string spot see you soon in the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things it's intuition intuition which is really based on just experience this is the bit where we drink gin and and say to people keep on listening hang in there it's almost over we believe in you (laughs) no thank you for listening to two shrinks pod if you like what you're hearing tell as many humans as possible about it and just go to your psychic fair and 
Yep. Tell people. Tell people. We won't be providing with any chocolate, though. No. <laughs> yeah. Or you can send us an email to shrinkspod at gmail.com with gushing praise, bitter disappointments, or suggestions for future shows. Yeah, suggest future shows. I'm really, uh, I'm yeah. really hoping someone could do that because, uh, you know. I mean, we've got ideas, but we're never quite sure exactly what people want to listen to. So. And we really like pleasing other people, so it really, really just like, tap straight down. into that. <laughs> we spent hours researching whatever you wanted. <laughs> That's it. Like minions for a day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and, and give us sort of stars or nice ratings or whatever you do on iTunes and whatnot. You are so eloquent. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's the gin. Two drinks pot. <laughs> And we're back. Hello. Hello. Here we are. Cheers. <laughs> I'm liking this. Mm. I think gin in the break really works. Oh, that's it. So we're drinking Artemis gin, which is an Australian gin. Mm. Cherry flavoured. Cherry flavoured. So they, they hand pit 11,800 cherries in Smith, on Smith Street in Collingwood. Do you think they counted them? <laughs> I'm sure that they did. So this is lovely. It's like this lovely, deep red, dark colour. I wonder if you can identify the makers by the fact that their hands would still be stained with the mm. cherry red. So mm. okay. um, if you see a bottle of it, get it. So at the end of each show, we like to talk about a random article or two that we've come across. And this week, I'm sticking with the gin theme that apparently I've... It's coincidental, but that is... Superstitious. Yeah. Or conditioning <laughs> of your behaviour. <laughs> Just sitting looking longingly at the drinks cabinet, hoping that you'll respond. <laughs> okay, so the effect of alcohol references in music on alcohol consumption in public drinking places. Yeah, right. By Engels and colleagues in the American Journal on Addictions in 2011. So they talk about that there's a whole bunch of research on priming that we're more likely to engage in particular behaviour when it's been primed and when we're in a situation where we're sort of motivated and able to engage in the behaviour. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole bunch of stuff, say, on aggression, about sort of priming aggressive attitudes before going into a situation that's kind of boisterous or more sort of masculine and then people are more aggressive, for example, or priming before shopping or there's all sorts of different ways that we can be influenced. They wanted to find out whether the references in music to alcohol can influence how much we drink. Uh, And they also mentioned about the sort of prevalence of alcohol mentions in music. I did find another study that looked at sort of plotting that over time and it looked like 2011 was particularly high up there for mentions to different types of alcohol. But yeah, right. yeah. And they estimated that the, an average adolescent will be exposed to 84 references to substance use every day through music. Really? Yeah. Which is interesting. I would not have thought it was that Yeah. Hard. So they reported recent research that was looking at that. I'd love to know a breakdown of by substance. Might have to look up the article that they referenced. I'm not going to do that. Mm. They wanted to know what happens when you're in a bar. So they compiled two databases of music. One that was all songs that had references to alcohol and then another that had songs that were matched based on the same artist with the same tempo and the same kind of energy. Is it this this point in the pod do I fade up one bourbon one scotch one beer? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) So you got the two matched data sets um, and then they had a selection of bars and then what they did was they allocated a particular day of the week and a particular time. They then played the databases on in the bar in the bar so they played two hours worth of music that had all drinking sort of themes in it Mm -hmm. and then same night next week or whatever they played the database that had the same tempo same beat all the rest of it but 
didn't have any references to alcohol. They also got the bartenders to rate how busy it was so they could see if that had an impact. And so they found what you would expect, that more money was spent when it was busier, but that also more money was spent when alcohol was referenced in music, Mm. um, even when you controlled for the busyness. Do they give a list of the songs? The, The one example they gave was, they gave an example of one that was matched, which was Red Red Wine yeah. with... I can't remember which other song by the same. It's UB40. UB40 by the same, yeah. So they only gave one example of the sort of pairing. Yeah. But essentially, people are spending more money on alcohol when you're surrounded by music prompting you to do so. Yeah, right. Yep. There you go. So careful what you listen to. (laughs) (laughs) What do you got? Uh, So um, I've had IKEA on the brain this week. Fair enough. Uh, I've had to have two trips to IKEA. Mm-hmm. There's there's a third trip that's going to be there because oh, can I come? The, well, actually, you live closer to IKEA than I do. I know um, that's dangerous. There's some drawers that don't fit quite right. Blah blah blah. Anyway, what a shame. You'll need a furg and a snorkin. <laughs> and a snorkin. <laughs> it's, I think it's a Maximia. Mm. Maximira. Nice draw. Hello, IKEA. Um, yeah, if you want to send us some Maximira drawers. <laughs> Um, so it's quite interesting actually that seems to be there is a little bit of a literature on ikea if you and i only looked in one database Hmm. i came across something which is the ikea effect which is you value something more if you've assembled it yeah and so they attribute a lot of like the success of ikea to this effect i basically would attribute the success to ikea it's cheap yeah so but anyway. And they get you locked in that kind of Skinner-like maze. The, the one thing, yeah. Well, actually, I was going to say the one, the one piece of research I was really hoping to find when I typed in IKEA was like spatial awareness mm. in IKEA stores or like people getting lost in I, I, IKEA And stores. you couldn't find it? No. <laughs> have you worked out, have you visited enough to know all the shortcuts through the departments? Um, I kind of feel like the shortcuts are cheating. Yeah, but so look. like I like I like I do know that they're there and yeah. I can use them, but I <laughs> you choose not to. I choose not to. There's a couple of shortcuts that I'm very comfortable using. Yeah, like the straight through of the kids section, which is next to the cafe. Yeah. I'm I'm cool with that. Yeah, but there's the times like you know what I'm here. Yeah, I'm I've gonna, committed I'm, I'm, to I'm the gonna, next six hours. It's it's like watching Eurovision. Yeah, you, you have to watch it from eight eight like from the start. To the yeah, end. from yeah. the one dollar coffee through the one dollar hot dog. That's it. Yeah, exactly right. Anyway. <laughs> Wow. Um, so, Sorry. So, so this paper is, is classic. Sex Differences in Furniture Assembly Performance and Experimental Study. And it's by Susan, Susan Wiking mm-hmm. from the Department of Psychology at the Arctic University of Norway. Hmm. And it was published in Applied Cognitive Psychology in 2016. I'm sure that there's many listeners out there who have had arguments with their partner regarding who is better at assembling stuff so they talk about i am <laughs> well you know that's it's interesting you say that so the lean <laughs> lean packaging makes transport easier but it comes with the price of self-assembly this activity can evoke strong emotional reactions depending on the outcome in some homes furniture assembly also triggers a discussion on who does it best and why <laughs> in 2008 the ceo of ikea germany Petra Hesser announced that women are more skilled than men in assembling the company's furniture. And according to Hesser, the sex difference arises because men often fail to study the instructions. <laughs> That's while, what I was going to say. I just follow the instructions. While women study them thoroughly, in the media statement, she does not reveal how IKEA came to this conclusion. So the authors of this study designed an experimental study of sex differences in assembly performance from the perspective of furniture assembly as a spatial activity. Nice. Despite popular beliefs and previous research on assembly tasks, they were not aware of any study that has targeted sex differences on furniture assembly performance. Gap in the research. (laughs) Gap in the research. They talk about these three categories of uh, spatial performance, so spatial perception and spatial visualisation and mental rotation. Mm -hmm. The one that's most relevant is like mental rotation, which is involving comparing objects with different orientations to decide if they're similar or not. Mm -hmm. In a meta-analysis of... 50 years of spatial ability wow. research, the average effect size of mental rotation tasks was 0.94 standard deviation units in favour of men versus women. So hmm. men are, are at a population level uh, are yeah, better, better at mental rotation. Hmm. So, I mean, that's not saying that women yeah. 
it's just a generalization. As a general rule, men are much better at it. Hmm. So there was a study that showed that individuals with lower spatial abilities and less than average experience took longer time to assemble a TV stand. It's kind of fairly obvious. Yeah, so yeah. they got two groups, mm-hmm. equal, equal numbers of men and women. One group assembled using step-by-step instructions. Yep. The other just had the final diagram. Okay. Right? So, they were look, so they kind of looked at the influence of complexity of instructions yep. or something as well. And how complicated were was the furniture? Uh, I'll get to that. Okay. So they expected men to perform... Better than women. Mm-hmm. And then what they also suggested was that because women as a group generally score lower than men on the mental rotation task, mm-hmm. they expected the sex difference in assembly performance to be larger in the condition without instructions than yep. with, right? So where participants have to rely on an internal representation of the assembly process. So they've got 80 students. They're in their 20s, 50-50 gender split, randomly assigned to with or without instructions. They had a mental rotation questionnaire, mm-hmm. which is kind of a fun test to do. Yeah. They used the Uden <laughs> IKEA trolley, which is a three-level stainless steel uh, kitchen trolley. <laughs> In the paper, they list the number 601.169.98. Is that the one that's in kind of teal with wheels? Because if so, I own it <laughs> and have assembled it. It's, it's grey. It's grey. And I looked it up and it retails for $99. Um hmm. In Australia. So they selected for its durability, complexity, and also the fact that like it was going to last because yeah. they had 90 assemblies. Okay. So they used three trolleys oh. uh, because of all the assemblies and one additional set of screws, apparently. You, know, you imagine that just like, you could imagine this was a poor RA. Having to take it apart. Just like, oh, I've got to go to bloody Ikea and get this bloody tray again. I'm putting some hot dogs <laughs> yeah. on the research. On the budget. Bill, on, the, on the grant. Yeah. They got participants to go to a room. All the pieces were there unassembled mm-hmm. and you're either given the instructions or you're given like the final image yeah. to, to look at. And they looked at the overall time of reading instructions as well as the time taken to build it. And then they also rated how well it was uh, assembled. Mm-hmm. So there was a sex difference on the mental rotation task. Mm-hmm. And so to, to the level which 24% of an individual score on the mental rotation task was uh, attributable to whether they're male or female. Hmm. So quite a large Fair difference. Amount. So results, mm-hmm. men were faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, people with looking at instructions were faster. Yeah. No interaction effect between instructions and sex. So that, that was talking about. That okay, might yeah. Have been. Yeah. There wasn't. If they entered mental rotation as a covariate, there wasn't much change to the results. Mm-hmm. The effect of sex was weaker, but it was still there. Uh, it was still there, right? Men assembled the trolley more accurately than women. Mm. Instructions helped. Uh, if you control for rotation, the sex effect did disappear with the how accurate it was assembled, mm-hmm. but the instruction effect did not. So, so mm. women looked at instructions longer than men. Yeah. And time spent on in the instructions was negatively related to mental rotation scores. So okay, yep. if you had good mental rotation, you didn't have to look, look at it so much. Yep. And so, and there seemed to also be... So was the length... Of was the longer time spent by women accounted for by the longer time looking at instructions? I think so. I, I kind of got a little bit confused. I think that they they said that that the speed of assembly yeah was like was it from walking in the room to completion or from end of instructions to completion? Oh yeah, yeah here we go. So women as a group have lower mean spatial ability than men. And this allows them to benefit more than men from the availability of instructions. Mm-hmm. And this study showed that aside from the time spent on step-by-step instructions, women assemble furniture nearly as fast as men do. Yeah, okay. So, so, yeah, thought, so kind yeah. of what you're sort of, sort of talking yeah. about. Um, the, res- the results show that men assemble furniture significantly faster and more accurately than women. This is expected when furniture assembly is considered as a spatial task. Mm-hmm. But as contrary to the claim made by IKEA Germany, <laughs> who said that men fail to study the uh, instructions while when women study them thoroughly, at the very least we would, they would interpret this to mean that women with instructions should perform better than men without instructions, and that is not the case. Interesting. So, you know, look, as a man, you know, yes. you can kind of... Under- you feel comforted? No, you know why? <laughs> why? Well, because I think this leads us into false insecurity. Yeah, like, yeah. I think it's all part of a like huge female cons- plot? international plot. It's like, 
Oh, no, we're no good at assembling this complicated thing. No, could, could, you, could you just do it? See, I'll just go I and have a cup of tea or a gin and tonic. I think that's a flawed perception because I would much rather be assembling the IKEA furniture while drinking the gin <laughs> than sitting on the couch drinking I, the gin I, watching it I happen. Can, I can definitely say that applying um, red wine or whiskey whilst, whilst yeah. assembling does assist. The assembling is so satisfying that for a while there, you know how in Europe there are ads in all the local papers for people who would just go around to people's houses assembling furniture? Yeah. I almost considered setting up that same service here because it's so satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I drink a lot of gin, but it'd be great. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be able to get home. Anyway. <laughs> so I'm an anomaly. No. But it's interesting. Maybe you've just got good mental rotation. Do we need to finish your kitchen and see who can do it quicker? <laughs> it's my kitchen. I'll go and buy a duplicate set. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for listening. It's um, been really good to get behind the mics again. Yes, and we'll see you next time for our 14th episode. Yes. Take care. See ya. See ya.